Malcolm Turnbull announced that the laws of math do not apply here. <laughs> One of my favourite brands of comedy aerial is brown people and black people <laughs> making fun of white people. Senators have been dropping like flies recently. Shouting out the fact that in the Knowles-Carter family, women just have one name. Backchat on FBI Radio. Backchat, yeah, on FBI Radio, 94.5, fbiradio.com. Um, the, <laughs> you are listening to Backchat. It is the freshest rap of news and current affairs on the radio. I'm your co-host, Osman Faruqi. Ariel Bogle. Welcome, Ariel. Hello. Hey, it's been a big uh, big couple of weeks in Australia because the Commonwealth Games have been happening. That's exciting. Was that a big thing? Uh, have you watched any of them? I, I didn't wa- I, I'm sorry to say... I got really heavily into the Winter Olympics, but I really <laughs> was sleeping on the Commonwealth Games. Yeah, I've, I've watched literally none of the Commonwealth Games. I don't know whether it's because I don't really watch TV that much, like mm. like other side from Netflix and Stan and that sort of thing. Um, but I did kind of pay attention to a particular news story relating to the Commonwealth Games. It's the fact that all these players have kind of gone AWOL from the Athletes' Village, um, which, you know, is obviously the village in the Gold Coast where they're all supposed to hang out. So players have gone missing from Uganda, Rwanda, and Cameroon. In fact, one in four of the Cameroon contingent have disappeared from the Athletes' Village, uh, and some of them didn't even rock up to their events. They just came to Australia, and then they left. Um, What do you reckon, Ariel? Is this a legitimate way to do the Commonwealth Games? (laughs) Well, you know, they wanted to see the Gold Coast, I guess. (laughs) They wanted to enjoy some like downtime in Byron. Yeah. Who can blame them? But yeah, I don't know. It's interesting. I guess we'll find out more of this story, whether they are, you know, just went AWOL because they want to chill out somewhere else Mm. or whether in fact they're going to be applying for asylum, for example. Yeah. So their visas that um, allow them to come here are valid until kind of the middle of May. So they're technically not breaking any laws or any rules when it comes to immigration. Um, I don't think their contingents are that happy, uh, the delegations Mm -hmm. that they've just disappeared. Um, But they could just be partying and maybe on May 15th when their visas expire, they'll go to the airport and go home. But but they may also seek asylum. And interestingly, there's actually quite a long history of players and athletes going to things like the Commonwealth Games and the Olympic Games and, and using those as opportunities to seek asylum. Nearly every Olympic game since World War II has had players uh, defect, particularly during the Cold War era. Mm. Um, in the 1956 Melbourne Olympic Games, 61 athletes, mainly from Hungary, actually defected and sought asylum. So it's like a, a, a significant amount of people um, back then. And the I, I guess the interesting thing, like I think before the game started, Peter Dutton and a few uh, immigration types were making a big deal about how they were going to stop this happening and mm-hmm. they weren't going to use the Commonwealth Games as an excuse to seek asylum. But it's completely legitimate for someone to come here on any kind of visa and once they're in the country, then apply for a protection visa. So there's no law-breaking going on in that situation. That's right, yeah. There's a good article on the conversation, in fact, laying this out. But it is, you know, these athletes have a right under international law to seek asylum in a country where they've ended up. Um, And, you know, I think the the Commonwealth Games sort of overseers have said that, you know, they don't have visas to stay there. In a few weeks' time, time will be up. And at that point... They either have to leave, be here illegally, or have sought a protection visa by that date. Yeah, and like you said earlier, we don't quite know, you know, we're maybe assuming that they may seek asylum. They may just have an awesome time partying for the next month. Hey, maybe they'll want to see more of the country than just the Gold Coast. Like, no shade on the Gold Coast, but there's yeah, a lot a of beautiful shade, things to check out. A little out. bit of shade yeah. on the Gold Coast. I look. mean, if I came all the way to Australia from Cameroon or wherever, yeah. and I was just stuck on the Gold Coast, I'd be a bit 
gutted, like there's other stuff I'd want to see. Yeah, I might duck up, you know, and go see the Great Barrier Reef, for example. Absolutely, yeah. I actually think it's the most Australian thing ever to like go on what is effectively like school camp, right, for athletes, and then just kind of go a bit rogue and check stuff out. 100%. 100%. Yeah. Um, anything else about the Commonwealth Games standing out for you? Well, I think one thing that seemed very interesting and really promising was that athlete, the athletes and para-athletes sort of competed at the same time. There was none of this. We've got the Olympics and now we have the Paralympics. It was all run, you know, simultaneously. And I think that's a really promising way for athletics in the future to be mm. more inclusive, to give everybody, the, you know, the spotlight that they deserve as pe- people in the you know, prime of their condition competing for Australia. So I think the Olympics should take a good look at that. Cool, personally. cool. Yeah, I've actually got another fun Commonwealth Games fact, but you're going to have to stick around to the end of the show no. to hear it. Um, but that's not all that's been happening in the world. It's not just been Commonwealth Games excitement. The big saga that is uh, Facebook and its data policy, its, its privacy policies has been kicking around the news as well. What, what's been going on, Era? You're a tech expert. Update us. <laughs> well, I did stay up very late this week to watch Mark Zuckerberg give testimony twice on Capitol Hill. Yeah, It was he, like the social network come to life. Exactly. Yeah, he was out there for hours answering questions from senators and Congress people. And look, uh, the first session before a Senate committee, the senators seemed to struggle, hmm. let's say, with the concept of the internet, the concept of Facebook. It was kind of like a tech support call. They're like, <laughs> sir, how does this work? Uh, but, you know, more power to them. A lot of people don't understand how Facebook works. So, you know, maybe we got some good answers there. But I think what's really interesting is that Facebook just seems so unpopular now. Mm. And this diet, you know, this story about them as people that are collecting more data than they mm. should, mm. people that they're invading people's privacy, that they don't know how to control their own platform. Because of the Senate committee and how much attention it got, it's really kind of crystallised in the public consciousness. And I don't know how they'll turn that kind of narrative around, to be honest. Yeah, we've got a bit of um, what Mark Zuckerberg said to Congress on this specific issue around privacy. Let, let's take a listen. Mr. Zuckerberg, would you be comfortable sharing with us the name of the hotel you stayed in last night? Uh... No. If you've messaged anybody this week, would you share with us the names of the people you've messaged? Uh, Senator, no, I would probably not choose to do that publicly here. I think that may be what this is all about. Your right to privacy, the limits of your right to privacy, and how much you give away in modern America. Whoa, what a tricky senator. Um, It's interesting, like what you were saying, Errol, before about whether we're seeing like a shift away now from from the trust maybe people have put in tech giants and social media companies like Facebook. People seem to be more aware of like what their data is being used for. My housemate, for example, has deleted Facebook. Oh, yeah. Um, I'm wondering whether or not that's something that is more common than maybe we realized before, but... One of the interesting things about about him is that he's deleted Facebook, but he's kept Messenger because mm-hmm. it's such an integral part of the way that so many people communicate now. And I think that's the difficulty. Even if we recognize that Facebook's got these problems, we've made it a critical part of our lives and how we communicate. Disentangling ourselves from it seems like it's not going to be an easy task. 100%. It's also you know, a very integral part of the architecture of the internet. Hmm. Like, Let's not forget... Facebook also owns Instagram. It yeah, also right. owns WhatsApp. Yeah. So, you know, you quit Messenger, say, what's your alternative? Are you going to use WhatsApp would probably be the one, you know, yeah, yeah, that yeah. would be a really good option, but yet it ties back into Facebook's platform. 
And the other, you know, interesting question that came up was this idea around monopoly. Is Facebook too big? Too big to fail, but yeah. just too big. And uh, before a Congress committee, people asked him, you know, what's your alternative? If somebody wants to quit Facebook because they're unhappy with the product, what's the service that matches it, you know, serve, you know, feature for feature? Mm. And although they compete in certain sectors with, say, YouTube or Google's products, there is no complete alternative to Facebook. And it really controls so much of our data that some people are starting to look at it as being too big for political safety and for consumer safety. Really, really interesting. So there will no doubt be more stuff to explore in that realm. But right now, you're listening to Backchat on FBI Radio, streaming on FBIRadio.com and on 94.5 FM. Coming up on the show, we're going to be talking about US foreign policy and the possibility of us getting sucked into another conflict in Syria. Right now, we're going to play you this tune. It's a new one from Kyle Uchis. It's called After the Storm, and it features Tyler, the creator. Oh, I love that song so much. It's a banger. It's so it's just like a nice balmy Saturday song to Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're listening to Backchat on 94.5 and you know, I'm getting a bit stressed out because in 2018 we just seem to be formulating public policy, foreign policy via Twitter exclusively. That seems a very stressful way to do it, to be honest. So on Wednesday, Donald Trump gave everybody a heart attack, tweeting that Russia should get ready for nice and new and smart missiles. <laughs> like, <laughs> Sorry right. for laughing. It's no, kind of terrifying. No. but yeah. I think we've got to laugh so we don't cry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This. He also tweeted, you shouldn't be partners with a gas-killing animal who kills his people and enjoys it. And he was referring, of course, to allegations that the Syrian regime has used chemical weapons, again, allegedly, on its own citizens. The next day, he reversed course, kind of, tweeting, never said when the attack on Syria would take place, could be very soon or not soon at all. Mm, that's that's clarifying. Yep, great stuff. So what are we meant to make of all this? Should we be preparing right now for a military escalation in the Middle East and in Syria in particular? So to help us figure this all out, we have Garana Gergic, a lecturer at the US Studies Centre at the University of Sydney, and she's here to help us figure out and maybe calm us down. I don't know. <laughs> How's it going? <laughs> Morning, guys. Well, I, I hope there will be some calming effects after this, but I, I'm not sure. I'm obviously not privy to all of the things that they are going on in the White House for, or in Donald Trump's head, for that matter. Well, that's, so, why, that's why you're here. Uh, you're, you're, a, you're a connection to his brain. Mm, okay, maybe we shouldn't call psychics or you know people with supernatural powers. I don't have those. But you're absolutely right that it is a bit terrifying that we are seeing foreign policy process unravel via Twitter. Um, and certainly what we've seen over the past week is the kind of rhetoric uh, toning down a bit. And I think that some of these um, uh, processes within the National Security Council and the whole apparatus of foreign policy are making that there have been some of the cooling effects of uh, the remaining lone adult in the room, uh, Jim Mattis, the Secretary of State, uh, who has cautioned really uh, uh, against deploying force if the, if it's not clear what the ultimate objective is. And really, at this point in time, we know that Donald Trump has obviously drawn that red line again, or he's acting uh, in a way that's anti-Obama, which is to mean that, you know, last year in April, we saw those uh, strike the 59 Tomahawk missiles that were di directed at Syrian airfield. And um, now, again, there is the kind of mulling over whether uh, a similar sort of thing will, will happen. But what's at stake now is the fact that Russia has 
said that they are willing to retaliate, right? Mm. Last year, uh, they weren't as vocal, but this time around, they said that they wouldn't uh, actually hesitate to deploy force against uh, the, the origins of those missiles. Which so, means you know, the US. US exactly. Wow. Well, not the US per se, but obviously the aircraft carriers that are um, maybe, you know, warships that are launching mm. those mm. missiles or uh, yeah, other uh, basically US resources around uh, the region, Eastern Mediterranean. And presumably the US would interpret that as an act of war if they were if their assets were attacked by Russia. Absolutely. So the open hostilities between the two major nuclear powers, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, that gets us into a whole new uh, kind of uh, game and, and uh, into a whole new field, even though obviously on the ground we already see these kind of proxy wars basically between the superpowers, mm. but mm. certainly not the open exchange of hostilities in that same way. So, of course, the United States is not alone in this, although they're probably alone in the bluster that Trump is showing. Um, France has also weighed in. The UK, France said it had evidence as well that Assad, the leader of Syria, had, in fact, used chemical weapons against his own citizens. Does that make a difference? Is that Would that provide a cooling effect, as you mentioned, or does that just say that it will really be Western Europe and the US versus Russia in the Middle East? Well, it certainly gives the United States that appearance of acting in a more multilateral way and having the UK and France um, standing behind them, knowing that, you know, they wouldn't act alone, um, it is certainly helping. So if anything, you know, the fact that Macron has come out, that Theresa May has come out and really condemned uh, these latest rounds uh, of chemical attacks in uh, in Syria certainly helps the uh, Trump administration to make that case for actually launching missiles um, but again ultimately it is a matter of the uh, process for foreign policy process and national security uh, council actually to uh, decide what they're going to do uh, the United States you know it's it's their call because French and Brits certainly wouldn't uh, act without mm. the United States Garana, this might be a very dumb question, but I was under the impression that the US was already militarily engaged in Syria and that they had, in fact, been bombing targets there for a while. One, am I wrong? Or if I am right, like what would make this intervention more significant? Like, why is there so much conversation about this right now? You're absolutely right. So the US has has been engaged in Syria uh, since 2014, actually. So under the operation Inherent Resolve, what a catchy name. Um, <laughs> and there was a, a, a multi-state, a huge coalition that was meant to actually target uh, ISIL in both Syria and Iraq, actually. And over this period of time, so now we are close to actually four years, the forces were, were deployed in September 2014. Uh, they have, you know, uh, probably uh, dropped... Uh, thousands upon thousands of, of uh, bombs and and, um, and had missile strikes uh, against ISIL forces in both of these countries. Um, all of this has been done with the main objective of actually destroying and degrading ISIL. Um, mm. There was never any intention to uh, effect a battlefield or the conflict diet between Assad and the um, anti-Assad forces. So kind of putting the thumb on the scale against Assad, but really dealing with the extremist threat there. So all of this has been done under the authorization to use uh, military force, actually, that has been voted in 2001. This is still part of the Bush wow. era yeah. legislation. So Obama has actually acted as part of the, the kind of global war on terror re legislation that we've had now for 17 years. Um, 
the talk today and and you know all these uh, debates on the deployment uh, of or stepping up actually uh, of of engagement in Syria would mean something completely different and this is now basically engaging uh, or or basically acting against Assad and okay. um, so for that now I mean you know you you can go down two different lines the president as a commander-in-chief actually has that authority to uh, basically to to uh, launch missiles but uh, this then becomes also a question of actually getting the authorization from the Congress if there was a sustained action uh, given the War Powers Act and other legislation that's meant to inhibit president from actually uh, uh, you know abusing power given that the core is, the mm. Congress is the one that actually has the power to declare war uh, under US Constitution cool, so no, thanks one. thanks for running me through that yeah. one and you know give if the US did like strike a location in Syria against Assad what kind of location would you imagine they would target because I know there's also been a question about you know although there's a lot of rhetoric here you know I'm sh- I assume that the US would not want to escalate anything with Russia in particular so say they were to bomb an airstrip that Russia was using, they would probably give advance warning, correct, to Russia to get them out of the way. So is there like a, there's a risk? Well, firstly, sorry, that's a very complicated question. Firstly, what kind of location would they strike? And secondly, would it be for show mostly over, you know, actual effectively cutting off Assad's military power? That's a great question. And this is actually something that um, Secretary Mattis was uh, getting to in his testimony in front of the um, House uh, Armed Services Committee, uh, where he said that the primary objective in in Syria has so far been targeting ISIL, right? Uh, but if they were to strike, um, they would want to ensure that there would be no civilian casualties and that these strikes would be against Assad uh, military and uh, obviously uh, those uh, places that uh, could could be basically linked to chemical attacks. So airfields are one, air bases uh, also potential, uh, the factories or, or uh, basically sites where there is a suspicion that the chemical weapons have been produced, either the sarin or chlorine or what, whatever it was, whatever was used um, just past weekend in this uh, a horrible attack um, in in one of the suburbs of Damascus. Um, so that, that's one thing. Um, the other question on your uh, on, on the kind of broader uh, issue of what is the end game here? Uh, there is a bit of cynicism also going on here because it's almost as if you know, okay, we've drawn this line. Um, we might as well act and do something just to show, you know, Assad that we are being serious or maybe that we are even sending a signal to North Korea or to Iran, you know, to to just be prepared that if diplomacy fails or if you misbehave, that actually we are going to follow up with force. But in terms of what is it going to do to change, you know, the balance on the battleground? I mean, the war in Syria is pretty much over. Assad is now getting out, you know, getting getting those last uh, pieces of country back under his control. All the major metro centers are under government government control. Now it's only a matter of pushing out rebel forces, mm. the opposition forces from those couple of pockets, especially, you know, those that seemingly are pr- big prizes around Damascus. Um, so, um, you know, is this going to, the use of force here has nothing to do with actually getting to uh, the negotiations negotiation table and trying to sway Assad to come to some sort of power sharing agreement to actually meet some of the requ- 
interests of the opposition, you know, all those things that have actually triggered what has been now a seven years long war. Um, Garana, I don't necessarily feel reassured, but I do feel much more knowledgeable now about the situation. Thank you for running us through all that. Um, that's Garana Gigic. She's a lecturer at the U.S. Studies Center at the University of Sydney. She's going to be sticking around because we've got some more U.S. stuff to talk about in our last segment for the day. It's Back Chat Roulette. Ariel, your topic is also US politics related, and it might be something that Garana can help us shed some light on too. That's true. So I want to just mention today um, some photos that are sort of going around the internet, Twitter in particular, of Michael Cohen. So he is Trump's lawyer. Maybe you can talk us through why is he in the sights of the Robert Mueller investigation? So Michael Cohen was part of this uh, uh, holy trinity of personal lawyers that Donald Trump had. He actually stepped down uh, recently uh, and he's the one that has allegedly uh, paid uh, six figure sum to Stormy Daniels and we know this whole story about Donald Trump's again alleged extramarital affair that has been kind of filling all the headlines uh, with with all the juicy details uh, 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 basically over the past month or so and so Basically, the uh, whole story here revolves around the breach of some of the campaign financing rules, the fact that uh, the Trump campaign uh, has paid out money to someone not to go out in the open with a story that might potentially hurt the candidate uh, and that actually those funds were directed from the uh, Trump uh, <laughs> campaign itself, uh, which is, yeah, I mean... And, All of this yeah, going yeah. on whilst we're also threatening to bomb. Yeah, so, yeah. I feel like we need a, you know one of those pin boards with all the red... Uh, <laughs> and I think we would all appear to be very crazy because everyone kind of comes together. I think Seth Myers actually had a great sketch, um, you know, just a couple of days ago about how everyone, like this seems like the finale of some sort of reality or something where everything kind of yeah. pieces together. But basically uh, now what has happened with Michael Cohen is that uh, he has become a subject of the uh, inquiry, well, for Bob Mueller, but then also for uh, the, the district attorney back in New York and so what's What's been happening over the past week was that there was a raid of um, Michael Cohen's, I think, uh, apartment office. Uh, and office yeah. and also a hotel room, I think, as well. Yeah. Um, and so basically they're, they're uh, worried that he might be either destroying evidence or might be kind of fabricating or, or basically kind of uh, collaborating with President Trump to yeah. obstruct justice. So, so. yeah, my um, roulette is these photos of Michael Cohen on the streets of New York with like his bros. And it looks like something out of Scorsese film. Other people have pointed out, like, it's a good fellas. They're smoking cigars. They've got big gold watches on. They've got, like, it's just like a scene prime from a mob movie. And, yeah. um, you know, if they wanted to look guilty, he could not have done better. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Um, and, Garana, there's something you wanted to run us through as well. Well, it's still staying in the US. God, there are so many gifts that keep on giving with this administration and, and everything that revolves around it. Um, so, Jim Comey's so former FBI director that got uh, dishonorably discharged um, in, in, uh, in May or so last year. Um, he is just uh, preparing for a book tour, given that his uh, 
memoir called Hired Loyalty uh, is uh, going to be out on Tuesday, actually. Mm-hmm. And so this is Put a reference. Put that in your diary. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you want to kind of have a have a, a look at, into kind of what 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 are, what are the goings on in the administration, there's certainly going to be a lot of that. And obviously, given that it's written from kind of a personal perspective, it's not so much of the gossip uh, as maybe uh, the Fire and Fury book mm-hmm. that came out mm-hmm. a couple Michael of... Yeah, exactly. Um, that that was kind of showing all the kind of court intrigues. But um, what I found really interesting in, uh, and, and this is just to admit, I haven't read the book, but I've read some of the reviews, is the kind of mix of the, you know, uh, Jim Comey being really, you know, serious and, and engaging with kind of broader issues of how norms are being eroded, institutions being challenged and all that. But also giving us these saucy details about, you know, Donald Trump's orange complexion and how he actually is much shorter in person than he appears to be. But also one, you know, that Donald Trump probably now is just furious about is the size of his hands. So oh there is God. actually, there is a sentence or two that is dedicated to Jim Comey's uh, handshake with Trump, where he says, well, you know, his hands are smallish, but they're not as small as like I expected them to be after all these rumors. So I, I felt that this was, I mean, this is what Donald Trump has done even to people like Jim Comey, I think, that we in the end, you know, all partake in these conversations. Yeah. No one and, can yeah. get out of this clean. No, yeah, no, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, we, we should all have like, uh, yeah, shower in some disinfectant <laughs> after this. Yeah. Um, so looking forward to that book. Uh, my roulette is uh, the Commonwealth Games fact I promised everyone at the start of the show. So Australia took out gold in the men's high jump and the name of the person... <laughs> I know, this is like a, such a silly story. His name is Brandon Stark, um, who is obviously also a character from Game of Thrones. I don't watch Game of Thrones, but I know enough about it to know that there's a character called Brandon Stark. Mm. He won gold for Australia. Woohoo! Advanced Australia Fair. Green and gold, etc., etc. But he's also the brother of Mitchell Stark, the uh, pace bowler for Australia. Ariel's looking at me like she wants to fall asleep. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. Um, anyway, I just think it's funny that we have a guy called So the Brandon. cricketer... Mitchell Stark. Mitchell Stark. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See, Garana knows what's up. All right. I, I do because I have Slovenian friends who are very happy about his, I think, Slovenian heritage. Oh, really? So, Interesting. yeah, there you go. <laughs> As awesome, awesome. All coming together. Yeah, perfect. The full circle's complete. But look, yeah. that's all we've got time for on the show. Garana, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. A lot of fun. And a special thanks, as usual, to our producers, Natalie Sekolovska and Emilia Zhao. Agenda is up next. Have a great weekend, everyone. We're going to leave you with this song from Kalela. It's called Rewind.